0: The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. In the last few years of his life, as these Alzheimer's continued to sink its talons into his mind and rob him of his memories and even his sense of self, uh, my mother's father, we had the blessing of the dementia, not changing him from a person who is kind and loving to another kind of person. Sometimes it will do that, as some of you know. And you'll begin to see a personality emerge that's really not part of who that person has been their whole life. My grandfather, by God's grace, uh, was one who experienced the decline of his memory and loss of his self, but just carried with him all the time just a sweet serenity. And I remember going to visit him the year after I graduated from college, At that point, he sometimes would recognize me, most of the time not. And I was visiting with him and he was just the most magnanimous and hospitable person. He would say, Well, son, where are you living now? Well, I'm living back in Georgia. I finished up college. Oh, that's great. Now, you have a place to stay tonight? Well, I'm just visiting this afternoon, Papa. I'm going to be leaving. Well, I sure wish you would stay. Uh, We'll find a place for you to stay. I'm sure mother can find a blanket for you and Thank you. Uh, that's very kind of you. I just came to visit you this afternoon, though. Well, thank you for coming. It's so good to see you. Now, now, where are you from? And again and again. As the years progressed, up until the last year that he was alive, he oftentimes would not recognize my grandmother of almost 60 years in their marriage. and She would be a stranger to him. Some of you have gone through that journey together. The thing that Dementia could never rob him of, though, was this. If you started to pray... He immediately understood the posture to take. He would close his eyes and oftentimes fold his hands. And he would offer amens and affirmations throughout your prayer. He knew in that moment we were talking to God. And if you sang the first line of basically any southern gospel hymn from the last century, his rich baritone voice, his his whole countenance would change. His eyes would just light up and his face would lift and he would just begin to sing with enthusiasm. Because that dementia could not rob him of the deepest things in his soul. This series, Then Sings My Soul, on this final Sunday, has not been about taking a walk down memory lane or stirring up sentimental feelings about all of our grandparents and how we sang those songs with them. It's fine if it did that, but that's not been the point. The point is that hymns shape our view and portrait of God. Think about this. Part of what we understand about God comes in the theology that we sing. Now, if I were this morning, if I were so inclined, I could say, today I want to preach on the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons mysteriously in one God. And what I've got here is I've come up with you know, kind of a list of about ten verses that support that. And then I'm going to dig through Christian history and mine some of the greatest minds that we've had. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Teresa of Avila, all of them. And we're going to build an argument for the understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If I did that, most of you would be like, my stomach is already growling. Do they still have food out there? Do you think it would be okay if I went out and got some more pretzels and grapes and stuff? Or did they have more coffee? Your eyes would glaze over, and I understand that. But yet when you sing, holy, holy, holy... All of a sudden, there's information there about the doctrine of the Trinity that is being woven in through artistic expression, and it's touching your soul and shaping your idea of God. That's the power of Christian music at work. Our final hymn today is inspired by this short five-chapter book called Lamentations. Lamentations. I would wager this morning that most of you could count on one hand how many sermons you have ever heard based on a scripture from the book of Lamentations. Most of us couldn't find it in our Bibles right now if we had 10 seconds to find it, like an old school kind of sword drill, they used to say. You would stand up as soon as you got it. You know what I'm talking about. You win the candy bar, yeah. You couldn't find it. It's kind of tucked in there right after Jeremiah, right before Ezekiel, Lamentations. It's not one of my favorite books of the Bible. Can I say that? I think I can. It's not one of my favorite books of the Bible. I like the Bible stories that, you know, tell me the great narratives of Scripture. I like the the actual stories in the Bible, not just the individual Scriptures. Now, I know if I need doctrine, I can go to Paul and some of the New Testament epistles. I understand that if I'm in a spirit of worship or even confession, I can dig open to Psalm 95 or Psalm 51 and find descriptions of God. I know that I can look, turn to the prophets if I need to be reminded of God's judgment upon those who do not walk justly and practice mercy towards others, and especially the poor. Those words are in there. I can turn to the prophets. But my favorite stories are ones like Daniel in the Lion's Den, Esther, Abraham, and on down the list. I like those narratives. And instead, this morning, there's a hymn based on this tiny little five-chapter book called Lamentations. You know what the book of Lamentations means? In the Hebrew, it literally means, how? As in, God, why did this happen? To lament is essentially a Christianese word for whining, complaining. Like, God, how in the world did you allow us to find ourselves in this situation? The book of Lamentations is all about trying to grasp hold of a faith in the midst of an environment that does not inspire faith. And I had a little bit more this week as I was reminded about the context in in which it was written. I had a little more patience and interest in Lamentations. If you went back to the Old Testament... You would find, uh, back past, you know, Israel's been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've wandered around the Promised Land for four decades, and now they've made their way uh, into the Promised Land after wandering in the wilderness for four decades. They have a series of judges that are appointed over the 12 different tribes of Israel. But then they begin to get a little bit jealous of the surrounding tribes. They're like, you know, they've got kings. It'd kind of be nice to have a royal family. We could watch the royal wedding on television every few years. It'd be a great thing to do. And they beg for a king, and so God provides King Saul. King Saul is followed by King David. King David has a son who's very wise and very promiscuous named King Solomon. And King Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. Under Rehoboam, the kingdom fractures into north and south. The ten tribes become the kingdom of Israel. The two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south become the kingdom of Judah. Now that's where Jerusalem is located there in the southern kingdom. I want to point out two specific dates that I've highlighted in red and in green. In 722, 800 years before Jesus, the Assyrian Empire began to build through modern-day Iran and Saudi Arabia, and they began to march uh, westward toward the Mediterranean Sea. It was there that they conquered and totally decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. Not only did they burn the thing to the ground, but they carried away all of the leaders of industry and leaders and politicians, all of the educated people, and left only blue-collar farmers left to manage the kingdom. Well, less than 150 years later, the same thing happened in 586 to the southern kingdom of Judah. This time it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. They burned the temple in Jerusalem to the ground. Every cultural icon that was precious to them, they saw decimated and erased. And it's in the backdrop of that reality. Some small scribe sits down and writes Lamentations 3, 23 and 24. The steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope in him you know there's no longer a grand temple in jerusalem in which they can walk and have their spirits lifted towards god this great majestic building that surely inspires them to think that god will meet us here There were no longer any flag-waving parades down Main Street in Jerusalem where everyone said, man, isn't it good to be a Jew here in the year 586? Those were gone. They could no longer look at the ticker tape of the Dow, Dow Jones and the stock market and see, yeah, the hand of the Lord has been upon our country. We are prosperous. God's favor rests on us. All that is gone. And yet somehow they find the will and the wisdom to sort through everything big about their faith being reduced to rubble and still say, new every morning are the mercies of God. I think while Lamentations is not my go-to for a favorite Bible, a book of the Bible, God knows we need it. And here's why. I like the big stories of faith. I like the stories about Abraham being shook out of his sleep by God and saying, hey, go outside. Look under your feet at all those granules of sand and look up to the stars in the heavens. One of these days, if you will be obedient to me, I will make a covenant with you and your children and grandchildren will become more than those granules of sand or stars in the heavens. You will be my people and I will bless the entire creation through you. And Abraham's eyes are open I like the story of of Moses, that felon on the run on the backside of the desert on the other side of Midian, who's out there guarding sheep at 80 years old, and the presence of God shows up in a burning bush and calls him to go down and liberate God's people from slavery in Egypt. I like the story of David and Goliath, David who's taking groceries to his brother who are on the front lines of the battle, and he hears this giant mocking the Israelites and their God, and he's like, I'll take him on. And he kneels carefully, and I have to imagine prayerfully, into that brook and scoops up five smooth stones. I like the story of simple Mary doing laundry in Nazareth, chewing bubble gum, listening to her playlist, (laughs) and the angel of God Almighty shows up and said, you will be the one to bring God's Messiah for Israel into the world. I like the story of Mary Magdalene. (laughs) who can't see straight because of the fog in the garden and the mist in her own eyes, who sees who she thinks is the gardener until he calls her name. And the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is spoken first to her. You know the story of Saul persecuting the church on the Damascus Road, being struck blind by the light and coming to know Jesus Christ. I like the big stories. It seems like the God of the universe is just ripping the veil between heaven and earth open, and individual human beings have some kinds of mysterious experience, and they walk away saying, wow, that was God. I am changed, and I'm going to decide to use my life differently as a result. Those are the kinds of gripping stories that I like, and I recognize in myself a lust for experiences a desire a deep longing for the next spiritual aha the next mountain i can climb where it's like oh, surely i've been in the presence of the lord i've been convicted about myself i don't know if this will you'll see yourself in the reflection of this description or not but i've been convicted by myself and concerned that, that we have developed in the christian faith here in the western world specifically of the united states an obsession with Christian influencers. Here's what I mean. Pastors, authors, worship leaders, bloggers, speakers, who market their thoughts for consumption in a Christian market. They'll develop a brand, complete with streaming Bible studies. They'll offer consulting services for $300 an hour. Um, They'll have an app, a catalog of worship songs. If you subscribe to them, you can use them in your church. And Man, it's tempting because there's some really talented people and really smart people. And really inspiring people. And I'm not here to criticize them. I have nothing critical to say about their intentions or them doing I have benefited, and you probably have benefited because of my benefit, of the inspiration that I've found through following these folks. What I'm concerned about is the temptation I occasionally recognize in myself to find the next great memefied idea. Oh man, have you followed this person? Their Instagram feed, man, just helps me think about things in a way I've never thought about them before. There's a fundamental craving in human life to have significant experiences and events on the mountaintop where the distance between us and God seems very, very small. A few years ago, I was pastoring a church, and we had in that church a lady who sat on the front row And she sang every Sunday like she meant it. I mean, the kind of person you're really enjoying if you're up front, seeing them engaged in that way. The kind of person that felt God's call to move forward from the back seat toward the front. A very rare thing. God bless you, and you, and you. I'm just kidding. She was a wonderful Christian, very devoted follower. And what I learned about her very quickly is that she was really into going to Christian conferences. Loved it. It seemed like at least once a month she was driving to Memphis or Nashville, Atlanta, Mobile, Pensacola, somewhere, to a Christian conference. And she would come back and she was so excited about it. And she would share her nuggets of wisdom that she had gleaned or a particular experience they had had in a worship service or a resource that she had purchased from a lobby as they recessed out together. And she was so excited. But her language was laced with things like, oh, now that person is anointed boy, the Spirit of God was really there. And you know, they're going to be in Memphis next week or two weeks, and I've got to go because it's going to be a mighty movement of God. And what I wondered when I heard that is, you know, there's almost an adrenaline rush to be hooked on an aha moment as though God's best work in your life or mine will be reduced to a single event or episode. And a writer in Lamentations 3, watching his homeland in smoldering rubble, sits over his morning coffee and raises a hand of objection and says, there is no substitution for allowing the God of mountaintop experiences to inhabit the smallest and most mundane details of my life and yours. There is no substitution No substitution for God getting involved in the tiny little habits of everyday scheduling because the abundant life of Jesus Christ does not happen in a moment. It happens one teaspoon at a time, on time, over time, consistently. If I went to Revolve Gym tomorrow and came home, my wife's probably not going to say, I don't know what you did today, but you were looking particularly fit and hunky. Now I wish she would. (laughs) Probably not going to happen. Unless I make it a routine. Day after day after day. Week after week. Month after month. She might say, I've noticed you've shed a little bit of weight. I've noticed you're walking a little taller. You can't prepare for retirement by setting aside a, a little bunch here and then a little bunch there the last 10 years of your work life. Got to start early. Got to make those small deposits on time, over time. It's the only way to get to where your goals are. You can't build emotional intimacy with your spouse. That sense of connectedness, which is so contenting and satisfying by just scheduling the next grandiose vacation. It will be built in one million acts of consideration and kindness given without thought day after day over decades. Jesus Christ wants to change you and he wants to change me. And his best work will rarely be in a sudden moment. For most of us, it will be tiny steps, one at a time for years. He was born in 1866, a year after the Civil War ended. I love this picture of him. Thomas Chisholm. lived to be an old man. He was born in Franklin, Kentucky, on July 29th, in a log cabin on his family's farm. Enjoyed a simple life growing up, raised on a farm, like I said, and he went to the small rural public school, and at the age of 16, he had been such a good student, they made him the teacher of the small school, At the age of 16. He spent his life there. At the age of 27, he was in Franklin, Kentucky, and attended a revival service in which Henry Clay Morrison, a well-known preacher of the day, was preaching. And he had an aha moment. His life was changed. He felt like God loved him, that God could forgive him, and he could walk in a newness of life, a new reality every day, that he was accepted and loved and called by God to move forward. He did. He served as a Methodist minister for a little while. And he lived a long life. And that's the only thing I can really tell you about him. Unlike week one, when we talked about Horatio Spafford, who wrote the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, out of the incredible tragedy of the untimely death of his four daughters drowning at sea, Thomas Jisselm didn't have that happen. Week two, we talked about the story behind Amazing Grace, with John Newton, who was a wretched, evil person who was guilty of murder and participating as a captain in the slave to British slave trade. Terrible things, terrible person, and God changed him. And he spent the rest of his life doing repenting, or repenting and doing different kinds of work trying to atone. Thomas Jessel didn't do that. Last week, we listened to that beautiful English ballad, Abide With Me, written by Henry Light, who suffered from a chronic pulmonary condition, who in the last years of his life would gasp for breath. And knowing that death was at his doorstep, wrote a poem claiming the assurance that comes from knowing God and believing that God was on the other side of that eternal door. Thomas Chisholm didn't do any of that stuff. He raised a family. He loved his wife. He went to work. And in 1923, at the age of 57, he was reflecting upon the way that God had changed his life, not in one moment, not in a significant event, but just little by little, incremental, steadfastly. And he wrote this poem. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars and their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me." The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.